Good morning, everyone. Not coming through? No? It's every time I come up here, like, it sure is not coming through. No, I'm on. It's coming through, isn't it? Yeah? Oh, it's every time, you know, it's not a sketch out here each time. I'm just going gonna to pray before we get the sound sorted. Lord God, what a blessing it is just to be here together, Lord, with just my brothers and sisters, Christ, Lord, who, just, who are before me now. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that we together, Lord, would just learn more of your, of your holy word. I pray that we would be built up together, Lord, as, as a family, Lord. I pray that we would just know your will for our lives, O oh Lord Jesus, and that we may take it out into the world, Lord, and just that you would just use us as instruments to bless the people of Silksworth and of Sunland, and that we may know you more in our own lives. Pray it in your name. Amen. So this morning we continue to follow Paul in his third missionary journey. Um, and he's heading to Jerusalem so that he can be there in time to celebrate the day of Pentecost, God willing. Now Paul's aware that this time of his ministry, it's drawing short. And as Nathan drew out over the last two sermons, Paul was eager to pass on as much advice and teaching to different churches as he could. But this was not just a business trip. We can see from the last two verses of chapter 20, the sorrow that Paul and the church had when they had to say goodbye to each other. It tells us that they were shedding tears, uh, the crying, embracing each other. It's an emotional goodbye because they both know it's probably the last time they're going to see each other. And our passage continues immediately on from there in chapter 21. So we're going to break this down into three points. Um, brothers and sisters in Christ, interpreting the Lord's will, and finding our peace in Jesus. So we're going to read from Acts 21. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to the sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding disciples there, we stayed with them for seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and their children accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemus, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried doors who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and his feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. 
After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Son of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of the Mason. There we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So that's where we'll stop for, for today's passage. Now, Acts 21 starts with the phrase, after we had torn ourselves away. And I think that captures the pain and the struggle that was for Paul and his friends to move on from the church of Miletus. I think sometimes when we study the, the life of the disciples and Paul, we can forget the reality of the situations that they faced. You know, Paul had for years been moving from place to place, establishing churches, making close bonds, and then being called to move on. You know, Paul made close relationships with people, and when we picture Paul, I picture a pretty, a pretty strong, stoic man. But as, as Nathan was drawn out last week, you know, there's no shame in crying uh, for the work of the Lord and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this work was surely physically exhausting and emotionally draining. Yet Paul labored with such constancy and determination because of the love he had for the brothers and sisters in Christ that he made along the way. Paul truly understood the importance of his life and the work for Jesus and the need to help one another as a body. And this is because when you've experienced the love of Jesus, you just want your brothers and sisters in Christ to experience that same love. You want everyone to have a deeper understanding of Christ because there is no greater thing. Now in church, we often use the phrase brothers and sisters in Christ. I think Nathan prayed that or said that at some point this morning as well. And I, I think it could be helpful in our own hearts to consider how this attitude of having brothers and sisters in Christ is impacting our activities within our own lives and within our church. Because it's been said that you, uh, you can't choose your family. Uh, and that's the same with our church family. And I don't mean that in a negative way before you think I don't like any of you. And I also like my own family as well. Don't worry about that either. <laughs> um, the difference from an earthly family, though, is that we've all been brought together by the Lord Jesus Christ, by God to be here. And the difference is that we, we've been adopted into a, a spiritual family. We all share that together. We've all been adopted by the same God. And another special thing about our church family is that if any of us meet another Christian who we've never met before, they too are they're part of our family. We're all joined together by the Holy Spirit. They truly are your brother or sister in Christ, even if you've only known them for five minutes. And this is the attitude that Paul had. When Paul went to these different places, sometimes for days, weeks, months, years, he saw everyone he met as his brother or sister in Christ. And he was determined to do anything to help his family to grow in their faith. Now, with any, as with any family, sometimes it's going to be a little bit more difficult to show love to one another. It might not come as, as naturally. But that doesn't change our relationship to each other or the need for us to continue to care for our church family. In Hebrews chapter 10, it speaks of um, the need for us to stir up love and good works amongst each other. The wording stir up, it suggests that that isn't something that's just going to naturally happen. It's something that we'll have to work at. 
because sometimes it can be hard to love one another. We are still sinners. We're all brought from different walks of life. We all have different interests. Yet the core of our relationship stays the same, that Jesus Christ is the most precious thing to all of us. And though there might be little differences amongst us, God declares that we love one another by his spirit. So maybe, maybe today or maybe this week, I would like to ask you all as individuals to think about a brother or sister in Christ who maybe, who maybe needs your support, who maybe needs your help, or maybe you haven't spent as much time with recently. I think a great blessing has been that the church family over the last few months, last year, has, has grown, and that's an amazing blessing. But sometimes that means you maybe haven't spoken to someone for quite a while. And that's a good problem to have. Yeah. But I would just ask that you would just in your own heart think about other people in this church who maybe need your support or maybe you need their help. Pray to God to open your eyes to that. Got it? Yeah, that's a good message. <laughs> Someone's got it. It's one out of uh, 60. <laughs> And as I was saying, you know, look at the example of Paul who shed tears for those that in, the, in my leaders. That's the love he had, and that's the love that Christ calls us to have together. The bonds that connect us are deeper than just, just friendships. We're all to join together by our Lord. And it's sometimes good to remember that we're going to spend eternity together. Yeah, and that's not a, to be resigned to it. That's something to celebrate. The relationships we make with one another are permanent because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, following this, Paul and his companions um, were then able to set sail from Miletus to Tyre, traveling by Kos, Rose, Batara, Phoenicia, and Cyprus. It's quite a list. I've recently been on a holiday, and I found it quite tiring moving from place to place, um, and I was relaxing. Um, never mind Paul, who was just roughing it up, probably, from place to place. But it appears um, that Paul was able to travel through these regions with relative ease, this is a man who was shipwrecked, beaten, put in prison, and he's able to go for all these places quite smoothly, at least for Paul. And that's because God had provided Paul with a period of rest from the adversity that he'd been experiencing. And following these emotional goodbyes and these long days of preaching throughout the night, because God knows what we can bear, and he's at hand to provide rest when we need it, Though at times it may seem that there's no relief, we often feel that we just can't go that next day. But remember that God is leading you towards the still waters of peace. He'll bring them at times maybe that you won't expect. Now when Paul landed at Tyre, we are told that the ship had to unload her cargo. Yet Paul would not waste this stopover. He immediately sought out other believers to fellowship with. Paul and his friends did not waste any of the opportunities that they had to encourage other Christians. And when I was studying for the sermon, I came across a quote, and I think it really encapsulates it well. It is the desire of good men to do good wherever they come. Now, this is certainly an accurate description of the life of Paul, and more importantly, the example of Jesus Christ, who wherever he went with people or his disciples, he sought to taught, teach them and to heal those who were sick wherever he went. Now, the model given in this passage 
is not to simply wait for opportunities to fall our way, but to be actively seeking ways to encourage believers, to witness and to do good works for Christ. Paul tells us in the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I wonder the last time that we could say we recognized and took an opportunity that, that God had placed before us. I suspect that at first glance, it might, that might seem quite infrequent, but, but is that the case? The first question you have to ask yourself is, are we desiring that God would provide us personally with these moments? When you woke up this morning or when you went to work last week, how many of us prayed at the start of the day that God would direct us to be a part of his plans? I suspect that a big reason that we're maybe not finding or recognizing these moments as regularly as we ought to be is because we're not preparing ourselves by asking God to open our hearts and our minds to see them. If we would come before our Heavenly Father desiring to do work for his kingdom, he will not let willing hearts and willing workers go to waste. Paul was able to go to different places, meeting different people, often who he'd never met, and he spread the gospel, and he built up the church. Even as he's passing through places, he found opportunities to fellowship with believers and to build them up. So when you head into your week or even after this service, Consider that quote for yourself. It is the desire of good men to do good wherever they come. Now we've noted during these recent chapters Paul's love for the different churches he visited. But we shouldn't overlook the love that these different churches and groups showed back to Paul and his friends. Though Paul was a mighty man, he still benefited from and was blessed by the love and support of those he met. In his letters, when Paul wrote to the different churches, he didn't ask for money, didn't ask for ease. What he often asked for was prayer and companionship and relief. We see in verse 5 that when Paul went to continue his journey, that the local church walked with him to send him off. And it's quite a distinction um, from the other ones that I could understand, at least from my reading for our Acts, is that when Paul goes, it isn't, just, it isn't just the men, it isn't just the women, it's the children as well. All of the families went out with Paul to send him off. And this shows the honor that the church bestowed upon Paul, not making an idol of Paul, but just showing an appreciation for what Paul had done for them. The challenge is that we would also encourage and uphold those who minister to us, especially those in full-time ministry. This might be for those who've ministered to us in this church, or perhaps others who are just visiting us from other churches, be that guest speakers, and we've had plenty of those in the last 12 months, haven't we? Or maybe just other people coming just to fellowship with us for a week on their annual leave. My hope is, and I'm sure it's your hope, that all those people who came from our doors left as encouraged and as strengthened as we are by what they uh, brought to us through God's word. 
Because not everyone is called to preach from the word of God, but we've all been called to encourage one another as a body. And it's a great example from the parents of those in this passage to bring their children along with them as they sent off Paul. By bringing the children, they show their families the honor that should be given to those who labor in God's work and ministry. And we see at the end of verse 5 that they all knelt down together and prayed for Paul and his companions on the beach. It is vital that children are led in the way of seeing their parents and the adults around them praying together, living out their faith. These moments may be important parts of a child or young person's coming to faith later in life. And it's great to see so many children in the worship each Sunday, witnessing prayer, hearing encouragement from God's words, singing church songs. I counted at least 20 children walked out. That's like a congregation for some churches. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's amazing. And scripture tells us of the importance of the children seeing this um, at home with the lives of their parents. It says in Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. By this, we are able to show the children of this church how much God is worth to us. And God may use us to bring the children of this church to salvation. And what a blessing it was last Sunday to see amongst those who were baptized, some who've grown up through this church throughout their whole lives. What a blessing it is to see people coming to salvation. The second, our second point, interpreting the Lord's will. Now the main crux of this passage is centered on whether Paul should travel to Jerusalem because of the warnings of impending danger from the Holy Spirit. The first warning comes in verse 4, when the people at Tyre told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, we're not giving any more DL around this first warning. All we know is that Paul and his companions continued in their journey onto Caesarea, Paul continuing towards Jerusalem. As we read on, we're introduced to two characters who we've read about earlier in Acts. And don't worry, I'm not going to test you about where they were from. I'm going to tell you. Now, the first one is Philip. Um, and he was previously one of the seven deacons appointed to serve in Acts chapter 6. And he was the same man who went to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. You might notice now Philip is called the evangelist. So it shows that his role as a deacon had changed. And we are told that he has four unmarried daughters who all had the gift of prophecy. Now, while staying with Philip, we are told that a certain prophet called Agabus comes to visit Paul. And if we cast our minds back to Acts 12, we will recall that Agabus was used by the Holy Spirit to warn the people of an impending famine to give them time to prepare. Agabus is used again by the Spirit to provide a powerful warning to Paul. Agabus takes Paul's belt and he binds his hands and his feet together. And he declares that in a similar way, Paul would be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. Now, when the people in this group heard this message, they began to plead with Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Yet Paul was adamant. 
The question is, was Paul right to go to Jerusalem? With all of these warnings, was Paul resisting with the will of the Holy Spirit? And why does it seem that Paul and the rest of the group are getting two different messages? As we read last week in chapter 20, Paul tells us that he was bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. That's verses 22 to 24, if you want to look at that. And Paul says that Holy Spirit was warning him about what awaited him. And by that point, we can see that the Holy Spirit was making Paul aware ahead of time of what um, was before him. Not to deter him, but to prepare him for what he would face. Paul even acknowledges that his future trials would not prevent him from doing what he'd been called to do by the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who accompanied Paul will have certainly heard this same message. And we'll note there that they don't say anything. They just continue on in their journeys. However, in chapter 21, two separate groups of people tell Paul not to go up to Jerusalem, following messages from the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit gave two different messages, one to Paul and one to the people. Firstly, we should remember that Jesus makes it clear that a house divided against itself cannot stand in Matthew 12. God would not provide two differing messages for the same goal of advancing his kingdom. This would only lead to confusion and disunity. Secondly, we must note that only Agabus was giving the prophecy, and it was actually the people who interpreted that this meant Paul should not travel up to Jerusalem. Agabus says he'll suffer. He didn't tell him not to go. Thirdly, and most importantly, in Acts 23, which we will be studying in the next few weeks, so I won't go into too much DL there, but the Lord Jesus Christ, he appears before Paul. And what he tells him is, be of good cheer, Paul, for you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. The Lord Jesus Christ was commending Paul for following his commands to travel up to Jerusalem. We can see from these examples that it was indeed God's will for Paul to travel to Jerusalem. But why then did the others seem to contradict this message and cause Paul so much pain in an already difficult process? Paul himself says in verse 13, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? And from my study, it suggests that though it was the same message delivered by the Holy Spirit, the gift of judgment and the strength to interpret the message was varying between Paul and the people. Though the people were able to know that Paul would indeed face trouble and danger, they were not given, they did not have the gift of interpretation that Paul had been given. And the Holy Spirit had been speaking to Paul over a long period of time to prepare him and to make him aware of it. And I think we can take some encouragement from this passage. I'm going to be honest. I'm stealing this from Nathan. I was talking to him about it on, a, on Wednesday while for some breakfast. We we're just talking through the passage again. What a blessing it is to have fellowship together. We we're talking through this passage. And he went, Do you know what? Isn't that just so encouraging that sometimes that even people, such godly people such as these, can find it sometimes difficult to understand God's will? I found that encouraging because sometimes it can seem, it can seem difficult. And I think that's because, because of our human nature. 
we can sometimes lack the clarity and the wisdom that we would desire to know the full will of God. And this leads us to our third and final point, finding our peace in Jesus. And I think part of that human nature, the one that kind of can disturb our clarity, I think a big part of that is our natural tendency to worry. I think sometimes worry can blur our understanding of what God wants for our lives. And sometimes we can use worry as an excuse maybe when we know what God wants us to do, but I'm just too worried to accept that as a reality. So I'll say I don't know which way God leads me because maybe the cost just seems too high. Paul says that he was taught by the Holy Spirit and he was prepared for what was coming. He tells his friends that he was indeed ready, not only to be bound, but to die. And I think Paul's friends' judgment became naturally skewed by their concern and worry for Paul. Because it is, of course, sensible not to head into unnecessarily risky situations if there's no need, because life is precious to God. But the call of God can even at times demand our lives. And God calls us to be willing down our lives, willing to risk anything this earth can offer us for the glory of God. And I can promise you that when you're before Jesus Christ, when you meet the Lord Jesus Christ, there'll be not one thing that you've lost that you'll go, it wasn't worth it. There'll be nothing that you'll regret losing for the sake of Christ. And Paul saw that with such clarity. We talk about risking things for God. Anything that we try to hold on to in this life, that's the risk because you can't take it with you. You will lose that. Anyone who wants to save their life, their life will lose it. Whatever we lose for Christ, we will gain so much more in heaven with him. But from an earthly perspective, you know, you can definitely relate, you can definitely relate to the friends and their concern. Sometimes you can use your own earthly wisdom. You can say, well, Paul's an effective minister for advancing the kingdom. Would it not make more sense for him to avoid this harm, to avoid being bound? Would it not be better for Paul to be free to continue traveling around all the church? Where's the fourth missionary journey? Where's the fifth? Keep going, Paul. Would that not be better, God? But we must remember that when we commit our ways to God, we're committing them to a God who knows the start and end of all things. And it can be tempting to become trapped in the habit of trying to think out the future, trying to think what will come to pass in our lives. And this is especially true when God's calling you to step out in faith or make a big change in your life. And this thinking it out, saying, well, if this happens, then I might do that. But what if that happens? Then I can't. It just, it just grows and grows and grows and grows, doesn't it? That can, that can delay us from serving God. It can distract us, cause us to resist his will. And ultimately, it's often the fear of the unknown, the things that might happen rather than the things that actually happen that cripple us with fear. And I think we've all gone down those rabbit warrens of thinking in the moment all these things that could happen. And always, of course, the most extreme, extreme version was going to happen that probably will never happen. And when it actually happens, it, it might have been bad, but it was nowhere near as bad as we'd made up in our heads. 
And this trap of worry reduces our effectiveness for God. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he, um, he writes from a perspective of a, of a demon training an apprentice demon. Um, and he's trying to show him the best ways to attack a Christian's life, how to stifle him. And he describes how making a human focus on the future too much plays well into their hands. It says, Our business is to get them away from the eternal and from the present. It is far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in that direction already. So that thought about the future, it inflames hope and fear. Also, it is unknown to them, so that in, that, in making them think about it, we can make them think about unrealities. In a word, the future is, of all things, the thing least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part of time. The past is frozen and no longer flows, and the present is all lit up with eternal rays. Hence, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past, love to the present. Fear, greed, lust, ambition all look ahead. If the people in this passage had the perspective of God, they would have known how much that Paul, despite the troubles he was going to experience, would go on to bless the church during his time in prison through writing the various letters to the churches, which we still are blessed with today. Paul would also be sent to Caesarea, and that's the same place that they were trying to persuade him to stay at. And it tells that Paul actually spent two years in Caesarea, and he was able to have his friends visit them. Through his imprisonment, Paul was able to spend more time with the people in Caesarea than if he'd stayed, because eventually he would have just left. Yes, Paul would suffer, but the message would spread. God would be with Paul even during those troubles. From this fact, Matthew Henry calls us to remember that at the times what we see is working against us, God can in fact change and redirect as part of his plans to be in our favor. If you feel like God is calling you to step out in faith, to do something new or to change what you're already doing, ask God to give you the grace and strength to make that change today and commit your future to his plans. Jesus commands us not to worry about our tomorrows because the tomorrows will worry about themselves. And I've been really thinking about this uh, recently, about not looking too far ahead. Think about the day you've got before you, praying for the grace for that individual day. Don't be bound by plans in weeks and months and years because they're just a distraction, things that we cannot control. We don't know when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. We don't know when our lives will be demanded of us. So better not to take each day as it comes, praying to complete the task that God set before you today, Sunday the 2nd of July, rather than things that are coming in September or next year or when you're going to retire and all that sort of stuff. Take it day by day. Leave your tomorrows in God's hands. Now, it might be asked, why would God even allow Paul to know his future, knowing how easy it is for us humans to be filled with worry about the future? 
As we considered earlier, through revealing this to Paul, God was able to allow Paul to prepare himself for what he would face. God gave Paul the strength and determination to fix his eyes on the race that God had set before him. In verse 13, when he declares that he's ready to suffer, the Greek meaning of I am ready can be understood as a soldier being ready for battle. Paul was willing to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus so that his name would be spread and through his suffering and pain, people would understand how precious Jesus' name was to Paul. And through this unpleasant situation of his, of his friends pleading for him to stay, I believe that God further strengthened Paul's commitment to God. Now Paul, knowing the difficulty of what would lay before him, would have probably benefited from the support of his closest friends to help him through that. He probably didn't need them, adding to maybe those doubts and worries that would creep in. And I'm certain of the inward battle that Paul would have faced from the evil one, trying to tempt Paul to the easier way, to an easier route. We think of how the devil tried to tempt uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in the desert to an easier way. There's another way, it's easier. The devil is the father of lies. He aims to, uh, to bring lies from truth. You can imagine the thoughts that will be coming through your head. Paul, you've, you've done so much already. You're getting older. You've earned your rest. Just settle down. Listen to the advice of your friends. Listen to godly counsel. What if you're wrong? Everyone else is saying stay. What if you're wrong? If God really loves you, why would he let you suffer in such a way? And I'm sure we've all had similar thoughts in our head during difficult times or difficult decisions. Yet through the example that was laid before him by the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul was willing to sacrifice everything that the world could offer that he could please his heavenly Father. Let us together turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're nearly finished, by the way. Philippians 3, chapter, uh, verse 7 to 11. This is Paul writing. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's friends realized that his mind was not going to be changed, and they committed their future into God's hands. The Lord's will be done. That's not the group being resigned to, well, we can't persuade you, Paul, so 
whatever happens, happens. That's on you. No, the committing that God knows his plans and that everything works together for the good of those who love him. And we should notice that despite all the prophecies of the troubles and the fact that we're trying to keep Paul to stay, his friends continued with him in the journey. And it says that even some people from Caesarea joined him. And that a certain mason from Cyprus, though knowing that he was going to be arrested and bound and maybe killed, let him stay in his house. They were willing to follow the Lord's leading. They were willing that the Lord's will be done in their lives, no matter the cost. Now, as we continue in the Sabbath, let us look for ways to support and love one another from the same love that God has shown to us by giving us his son. Consider in your heart the things that God has been speaking to you about, the things that maybe you've been resisting because you're unsure of how it might change your life. Cast your fears to Jesus and ask him to give you the grace you need to serve him this day and leave your worries with Christ. And as it says in Ephesians 3, commit them to him who is able to do exceedingly above, abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would be the antidote to our fears. I pray, Lord, that you would be the motivation for us to continue in this journey. Lord God, I pray that whatever you've been calling each of us to do, Lord, as, as individuals in this church, Lord, that we would just, we would just leave it all before you now, oh Lord, that you would just convict our hearts, guide our steps, direct our paths. Lord God, may this church be filled with people humbled by your wisdom and perfect knowledge who have hearts such as Paul and his, his companions willing to say, let the Lord's will be done. Lord Jesus, give us the strength and grace that we need to do this. Praise in your name. Amen.